welcome to the fourth and final episode in our four-part series here in the Pink Smoke podcast on Errol Morris's documentary series, First Person, which ran in 2000 to 2001 on Bravo and then the IFC channel. Uh, I am joined, as I have been for the past four episodes, by Martin Kessler, talking Errol Morris, uh, for people listening, uh, we've record these are being released week by week, but we recorded them all very close to each other. So I've been pleasantly surprised. I keep thinking each time we sort of regroup to record, thinking oh, I'm going to run out of things to say. I'm going to run out of energy, and then each episode is like longer, and I have and more I, to say. With that. I spent our uh, our lunch break just thinking about all the things I could have said in the previous one that we recorded, but maybe this will be the one where our brains finally get scrambled. Who knows? Well, this time we're doing Wastebasket Taxon, which are his weird science films. And it's the obvious extra outro lead into this was uh, from the Heroes episode last time you pointed out, Martin, was uh, one of the, uh, Saul Kent, one of the subjects of this one saying, well, Dr. Frankenstein has always been a hero of mine. That would have been a, a lead into a different kind of heroes here. What are uh, what are the four films we're doing this time? Okay, we're doing uh, Eyeball to Eyeball, which is about Clyde Roper, who's an expert on squids and is interested in giant squids. We're going to be talking about I Dismember Mama, which is about Saul Kind, who's interested in cryogenics and postponing death. And it's sort of funny, he has these classifications. I think there's five kinds of people, which uh, I'm sure we'll touch on. Uh, we're going to be doing Smiling in a Jar, which is about uh, Gretchen Borden, who's um, a director of a museum of like medical. It's the Surgeons Museum. A Surgeons College in Philadelphia has a museum of medical oddities. I medical love this oddities. museum. Yes. This is one of my favorite places. This is like. I've never been there, but this, this oh, looks it's very amazing. interesting. And we'll I, I even know about, about some of the, the yeah. people that you mentioned. But, um, and then Harvesting Me, which is about Josh Harris, who is this kind of um, internet dipshit, dot com millionaire, internet dipshit, who um, came up with this sort of art project of living in public, where he was going to stream everything that he did, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> these are... are sort of these are his like any one of these probably could have gone in a different category. I dismember Mama could have yeah. been in the crime adjacent story, Smiling in a Jar might have been in Heroes, might have better case than. Antonio Mendez, uh, you know, Harvesting Me is obviously about intelligence um, and Eyeball to Eyeball. Again, it's also that's about intelligence and 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 maybe heroism, depending. Yeah. I think we ultimately did four categories because I really wasn't satisfied for anywhere else to put eyeball to eyeball. Yeah, I mean, I think very early on when we talked about doing this series maybe years ago, we talked about maybe doing animals as a subtopic, but it was hard oh, to kind yeah. of group them. Um, we kind of you know, get Because you could do cattle and parrots and squids, maybe somehow uh, all this one topic, but it's, it's hard to kind of classify all of these documentaries because they do have overlapping themes and interests yeah. and ideas, so. Human intelligence I'm, versus yeah. animal intelligence is definitely a theme. You know, what it's does it mean a, well, for a parrot to see a crime? What yes. does it mean for a cow to be murdered? So I figured uh, wastebasket taxon made sense as kind of a classification for the topic because in um, in biology, especially like paleontology, you have these wastebasket taxonomies, which are for 
like, ah, this doesn't quite fit and stick it in this, this classification. Like, um, I think Homo habilis, this is sort of a controversial one that people are like, ah, is it even, is it even really like Homo, like it's, it's not really a species. It's just like cram all the odds and ends that don't quite fit into this uh, evolutionary tree that's been laid out, this evolutionary bush, I guess, that leads up to humans because there's all these kind of weird odds and ends. So, you know, you'll come up with a wastebasket taxon, which is just like, ah, this doesn't really fit in anywhere else, stick it together. And I think that also kind of fits in with the idea of doing it as a weird science yeah. topic because these are oddities and these are sort of things that kind of are difficult to fit into certain categories but are you know maybe scientifically unusual yes interesting <laughs> specimens interesting you specimens know, is when, maybe also a good good topic title um when i was getting into errol morris as a teenager and i can't remember when i first saw his movies but Thin Blue Line was a very impactful movie on it. Was, it had a really, really big impact on me. Um, but I think the first one I saw was Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Um, around this time, sort of in this, this era, um, I really associated Errol Morris with like science stuff because he had made Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control and Brief History of Time. Um, and those were the only ones I had seen other than Thin Blue Line before I got to college because Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida, Vernon, Florida in particular, were very hard to see. And then I saw them in, in some film class uh, somehow. Vernon, Florida, I definitely saw in a film class. Gates of Heaven, I might have just been able to get access to from the university library. But um, it was, I thought of him as like, a guy who deals with weird scientific stuff. Like he was a science filmmaker to me in some fundamental way, as much as he was a true crime filmmaker. And I I see that thread running through his films in some way, even though it's it's not necessarily true. Like there is something sciency about all of his work, even in Mr. Death, just the science of killing machines as part of it and stairway to heaven again the science of of the slaughterhouses of killing machines there's there's something about science in his work uh and some like i think he's interested like. partly in methodology mm -hmm. like that seems to be a recurring thing and he's interested in the human mind and you know science is interconnected with these things you know if you're talking about intelligence then it starts to become interesting well how does the intelligence of a human differ from the intelligence of a, of a parrot or a squid or, you know, some of these other things. And you can start to see where this interest in science fits in with his other films, even the ones that aren't necessarily about scientific subjects. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's definitely true. Let's start with, um, with eyeball to eyeball. And I probably, again, mean to get this one out of the way a little bit. I this like is the one that I had the least number of notes on taking. Yeah. I one of my notes is literally note. just, I wrote like dash giant squids, which is kind of <laughs> redundant. But. It, it is. The only note I have on it is that at one point, 
he's talking about the giant squid and he stops himself and he says, well, not to anthropomorphize it, right? Yeah. And this really reminded me of Temple Grandin, who talks about explicitly anthropomorphizing the killing machines, where she says, I can imagine being a cow going through a machine, not in a cow suit, but actually a cow and envision what their experience is going to be like, where she very emphatically is saying, I process the world the way cows do. There is sort of no, the border between the Argentina and Paraguay of me and the cow is non-existent. You know, that she sort of uh, is not interested in that border. Whereas Clyde Roper, the giant squid expert, um, wants to draw those traditional borders between yes. man and animal. He, he really seems very self-consciously about there's a difference between me and the things I'm after and sort of man's dominion. He's very traditional science type in that way yeah. that even his I'm, beard makes me think of like traditional science type yeah. of guy. <laughs> you know, he looks like a, a character out of, um, you know, like a 1950s science fiction movie about a bunch of guys in Antarctica who are going to fight a monster, you know? Oh, yeah. He's like the third guy to get killed in creature from the black lagoon. Right. You know I mean? he's like, <laughs> exactly. But he's he's a very likable person also, I think, if you're talking about uh, people in these documentaries on the scale of likability, I, I think, um, you know, he's a curious person, he's an observant person. Um, he's like a guy that you're like, oh, that was one of the best college professors I ever had. Yeah, that, that's almost exactly how I was going to phrase it. I was going to say he would make a great, he would probably make a great teacher, like, um, it would be cool to take his class, you know, you'd be like, well, it didn't really have anything to do with my degree but that was an awesome class you know yeah, learning exactly. about squids but yeah. i think getting back to what you're saying about the the issue of anthropomorphization with um, something like a squid cephalopods are famously very intelligent you know uh, not just squids yes. but also octopi and uh, cuttlefish i think also but it's it's like about as alien as something else can be on this planet from a human being that is also intelligent you know so it's it's so different from us that it's a little bit hard to imagine their experience. Um, did you see the documentary, My Octopus Teacher? I think it no, won an Oscar. No, I didn't. That's, is that about the lady oh. who's fucking the octopus? No, <laughs> that's not what that's about. It's There's a... one of those documentaries. <laughs> Maybe it's a dolphin and a guy. That, that, I think that would be like my octopus piano teacher or something no there's there's a famous I, documentary that has a very similarish title that's about okay. like a, a person's sexual relationship with some pretty sea creature but the but the documentary sort of like hides it it wants it to be a beautiful story and is sort of like dancing around the like <laughs> he also has a sexual relationship with right. this animal um okay that, that's not the case with this documentary but like there are aspects. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I saw that documentary. Oh, I, I gotta finish up. the. Well, like there are there are situations where he's talking about this octopus that he's observing sentimentally. Yeah. You know, like oh, when she she touched me and I felt this connection with this tentacle and like I you know I was touching like another intelligent being that was curious about me and feeling me. But that's you realize like um, the standards of human intelligence are not necessarily something that should be. A, applied to a cephalopod that they're they're not necessarily intel like if you're talking about intelligence it goes back to the, the sort of iq question that comes up in our intelligence episode where it's like ah maybe these aren't good qualifiers of intelligence and that 
you know, the way we look at intelligence in animals, it's like, oh, isn't it great that the parrot could say a word? Yeah. You know, but really, like, what makes an octopus intelligent is not any kind of human intelligence, it's being intelligent in an octopus way. And if you watch this documentary, there are parts of it where you see, like, you know, it's a creature that it's got no shell, it's completely naked, all it has is its intelligence, really. You know, yeah. It, and um, it's hunting this lobster, and it has this human following it, documenting it. The lobsters keep jetting away when it tries to catch them. So it positions itself so that the lobster is um, where it tries to jet off to, there's the documentarian in the way. And mm -hmm. it uses this person following it to catch this lobster. Yeah. And you think like, wow, like what a smart creature, you know? Yeah. Or um, there's another part where it gets, uh, it gets attacked by a shark and it gets its limb, one of its legs bitten off. It almost dies. It recovers, it regrows the leg. And then I think the best sequence in the documentary, it's um, the sharks are after it again. You know, a couple, I guess, weeks later after it's regrown this tentacle. And you can see this octopus being like, I'm not going to get eaten no matter what. And it tries yeah. so many different strategies. It's uh, It tries camouflaging itself. It tries getting rid of its scent by rubbing itself on seaweed. It tries crawling up on land where these sharks can't get it for, you know, as long as it can stay up on land for. And then it makes a, it grabs all these like stones and shells from the bottom and folds itself almost inside out so it makes like a makeshift shell when this shark tries to bite it and then it grabs under the shark's back where it can't reach it, it was like every strategy yeah you could think of to try to like get out of being eaten and you know like to me that was really remarkable it like it's not so it was the, like blake lively in the shallows <laughs> the octopus was blake lively yes doing every um, you strategy know, so like, to not get eaten by the shark to me that was so much more meaningful in yeah expressing the intelligence of these creatures than like, uh, you know, I looked into its eye and I could feel that I was looking at another like thinking being. And, you know, I think like that's probably also true, but that's not really what, what makes it uh, intelligent. Or, um, I mean, another documentary that kind of touches on this, it's not about cephalopods, but um, Blackfish, the documentary yeah. that got SeaWorld into trouble. Yeah. You realize like, Okay, what, what's interesting and intelligent about these animals is not that they're like doing tricks. It's also not that they're just like victims that need to be protected. It, you know, the way the the orca whale was reacting, it's almost like somebody who's been in prison. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's like, um, I forget if we talked about this on air or not because we were talking so much kind of in between episodes, but you were saying about parrots uh, going crazy. You know, it was very similar with this yeah. orca whale, I think, um, you know, where it's like, I did the trick, you didn't give me my food, you know, I, I maybe I didn't hear some command because I was underwater. I'm bigger than you, I'm going to kill you. You know, yeah. like to me, that's, that's the intelligence part of that uh, is, is acting like somebody who's been confined and put in a situation where it lashes out violently, you know, like that's kind of where you see the intelligence showing through. It's not in like when we anthropomorphize, often it's very sentimental. It's very yeah. like, you know, I mean, um, not it, to keep it, talking it, about it other documentaries, but like Grizzly Man is, is kind yeah. of about how like this Disneyfication of like, oh, the animals are my friends. And yeah. like that, that side of that is all nonsense, you know? And it doesn't mean these animals aren't intelligent to say that they're not, not your friends, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. 
you know, to bring up Grizzly Man, where Herzog is always in his documentaries going out into really remote places to very, you know, to the foot of La Soufriere, to the Arctic Ocean, just going to all of these um, very, you know, Grizzly Man, just going out, although that's not his footage, going out, White Diamond's a better example, going into the yes. to the jungles. Um he's always going out into the world. Air Morris is never going out into the world like that. But one of the things Morris and Herzog, who were friends, uh, had in common is they're both experienced mountain climbers. They're both big mountain climbers, right? And Errol Morris theorizes that he loves mountain climbing because one of his eyes doesn't function right. So he has no sense of depth perception. So climbing mountains doesn't bother him at all. He's a very experienced belayer. And it's funny that that sense of going out into the world, Errol Morris loves all of these are documentaries in a very production designed room with very oppressive lighting. They're very designed spaces. He likes to put his uh, subjects in. He doesn't like to go out and film them in the natural world. He likes to put them in artificial spaces. He likes to use archival footage to cut to, to again, you know, uh, the footage that he uses to illustrate things. It's not supposed to give a sense of immediacy. It's supposed to give a sense of abstractness and sort of out of reality, like old footage that reminds you of well, something long ago. Often it's used metaphorically, world. like it's clearly... Yeah. Like a lot of documentaries, the way they it's use archival footage is is to like illustrate what's being said, and instead he'll use it as, I, I think, in a sense, like allegorically or displacing in a way. It's um, it's not meant to literalize what's being spoken. Yeah. So when we see eyeball to eyeball, there's no out on the boat with them. None of that things that no. the way you can imagine Herzog filming it. Like let's let's go and go down to the bottom of the ocean with you and let's let's find this you know this thing oh you said you when you found a giant squid uh, a corpse washed up on you and you made it into food and served it you know let's let's do that serve me some giant squid let's let's yeah, have that, that, that is such a Herzog moment I feel like yeah I, especially a while since I watched that it's inedible because uh, it's blood it's blood has like yeah. ammonia in it to make it unattractive to be eaten so I think Incident at Loch Ness, which is a mockumentary, I think even maybe parodies that moment or, or takes inspiration from it when like Herzog's serving dinner. I forget what, what it was because I haven't seen this in a while, but like, yeah, definitely serving up squid and like out of curiosity saying, oh, what does it taste like? Feels like a very Herzog yeah. moment, you know? Yeah, exactly. Of like, let's, you know, like when they're drinking the chicha and burdens of dreams, you know, and it's like, right, yeah. and Kinski's like, I do not want to do this under any circumstances. I got served it furtively as a joke when I was in Colombia once when we were like out in the uh, the wilderness. People were like, eh, drink it. Eh? I was like, okay. And it was just me and Sofredo had it. Sofredo was like, it's great. You're going to love it, Chris. And everybody else was like, no, we're not having any. I was like, what is this? It just looks like orange juice. Later, it's explained, you know, it's people chewing up a root and spitting it into a thing to ferment it. Um, but uh, but also the the natural world stuff reminds me of um, Clyde Roper, this guy. He's the kind of old school scientist I think of that I like, who's like a guy who has some fundamental connection to and respect for the natural world. He was like a fisherman when he was yeah. young and comes from like New England, you know, crabbing our family. When he was it's talking about his education but, yeah. being like, well, now that the uh, semester's over, I'm going to go back to fishing. And his professor's like, wait, like, don't you want to go and find stuff? And then yeah. he went off and discovered some new species of squid. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, he's, he's somebody who seems like on, 
he's satisfying his curiosity, but he also probably would have been content if he was just a fisherman. You know, yeah, he, seems... he has some fundamental connection to the natural yeah. world. And it's a striking contrast to what I described in Christian Langan and Rick Rosner, who seem deranged in the exact opposite way that Clyde Roper seems reasonable and calm and likable is they're math guys and there's something about math and abstract thinking guys that does feel like maybe that's what's damaging their brain cried robot i mean once you start getting into like the realm of like yeah you know square roots of negative numbers and stuff like that it starts to maybe break down your your conception of reality i don't know or stephen hawking who's forced to live inside himself in some way and comes up with all these theories some of which become as we discussed quite ludicrous about the the flow of time where if you're out you know like clyde roper would never come up with that theory of time because he's out living in in time in the real world fundamentally too much you know there's just he has too much of a connection to reality to be delusional and i think what why morris made this movie is he wants to oh we got a real life ahab this guy who's obsessed with finding a giant squid and is dedicated finding a living one dedicated his life to locating a living specimen of giant squid which is something that we know exists because dead ones have washed up but that and but that are mainly like a mythological species you know that if that they're very close to being a cryptid this is something you and i have discussed a lot where you know i think that that cryptozoology is is a legitimate science you know they thought silverback gorillas were a hoax until like the 50s they thought the coelacanth was dead you know they thought the duckbill platypus was a hoax when the first you know um uh, pelts of it were sent back to the British Museum that just like there's a lot of animals that get described that are crazy sounding that people don't believe in that then get proven to be true in some way and giant squid is kind of in that category it's it was a sea it, monster it was mythological it was a sea monster um you know I think I mean the, the conception of it as a sea monster I always think it probably was I don't think it was ever like pulling ships down the way people imagine in artwork and all of this, but I think, you know, my example is if you're living back in Viking times where, you know, you have this uh, myth of Kraken coming up, it's like a giant squid washes up on shore, a dead one, and you say, oh, that's the reason why that ship never came back last fall. Yeah, this is like there are monsters out there, like real literal monsters. Yeah, like imagine so, if we run into this on the open water, not knowing yeah. you're never going to run into them. They live no. too far down and are impossible to find. Yeah. But just that feeling of like, God, can you imagine being out in the water and this thing swims up? I don't want that happening, you know. And it's interesting. This documentary was made before a living one had ever been caught on video, and the yeah. way that they talk about it, it seems almost like maybe they never will. But this is not that long before. Yeah. one would finally be captured on video They're, they had this like method of um, i think they're imitating like those bioluminescent jellyfish yeah and try to lure one in and even then I, I think it's a great example of uh squid showing intelligence this giant squid the encounter it's so brief you see it get close it looks curious realizes hey this thing is not a jellyfish i gotta get out of here <laughs> and, yeah you know squirts and jets away uh, you know, because like down there, you don't know what's down there. If you're a squid, there's fish that use lights to lure things and eat them. And like, yeah. you don't know, you don't like this, this submersible might be by, yeah, by whales. Sperm whale. Yeah. yeah. Sperm like whales. The, one of the reasons Power. why um, they know there are so many giant squid out there is uh, because the, because of all the beaks they find in sperm whale. 
Yeah, they said so. He said that sometimes up to a thousand beaks yeah. will be found in the stomach of a single sperm whale. So, yeah, this animal that, from our perspective, is incredibly rare, which in nature clearly is not rare. Yeah. I also yeah, love so, when he's describing talking about intelligence and brains and all that, how its stomach runs through the center of its brain, that there's yes. essentially a cylinder where it's it's like esophageal stomach area goes through its brain. And you think about that's so fundamentally upsetting to our conception of self. You know what I mean? To think, I, I about think of myself as like brain. In, in here, you know, but yeah. if you think about yourself as like, <laughs> and you don't want anything in there anything yeah. in there is bad to yeah. your mind you so know if your anything. food goes through there yeah, yeah. No, they, they are really like i've said it before but like it's about as much of an alien creature compared to a human being as you can get and it's still an intelligent animal you know we're not talking about like uh you know some kind of uh, jellyfish or fungus or yeah something. It's, which it's... jellyfish to me i always look at them and know they don't have brains and they're actually immortal in certain circumstances yeah that like aren't these plants aren't we actually it, talking kinda, about I, 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 yeah. the yeah. classifications can get a little bit wishy-washy but like i think if you're talking about animal like there are animals that are clearly very similar to us you know it's not surprising that uh, we can relate to chimpanzees and gorillas the way they do and there are certain gaps in yeah the way humans think about things and the way chimpanzees or gorillas or orangutan yeah. think about things and there's some really great documentaries which kind of delve into this uh, or yeah, um, sure. show this in ways that like um coco talking gorilla is one of my favorite or, documentaries. or primate um, the fred wiseman movie primate's a really great one uh, even the uh i think it's just called jane uh, about jane goodall that came out a couple of years ago i think maybe it even has a philip glass soundtrack it kind of goes for a little bit of a Errol Morris style thing yeah but uh, like there's parts in that documentary when she's talking about like oh we really thought that chimpanzees were peaceful and then we started observing them like going to war with each other in a completely like chimps are her. apparently vile yes. serial killer psychotic evil animals yeah, all right well you know how they're many like animals been, that like uh, take glee and like cruelty and torture yeah you know which, I mean, there are closest relatives, so this maybe shouldn't be a shock, but <laughs> like, you know how many people have ever been recorded as uh, getting killed by a gorilla? Probably very low. They're so rare. Is it zero? Cool. Zero. Oh. You know how many people have been killed by chimps? A lot. Yeah, it's so say, shocking. Yeah, like, probably. Like the gap is, is really kind of obvious. Um, and just like the way that chimpanzees socialize is, is very different from the other great apes. Chimps are actually. also smaller. The thing is, you see a gorilla and you're like, I'm going to stay back from this. You see a chimp and you're like, I'll fuck around with this guy. And you don't, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's that's part of the. I mean, talk about like cryptozoology is a real science. Uh, did you follow this whole like um, saga of the Billy ape? No. Where like they thought that there was like another species of great ape out there that was kind of yeah. in between chimpanzee and gorilla. And that it's like, uh, I guess technically they're just chimpanzees, but they're above average in their size. But like there was this whole kind of myth of like, you know, the line killing chimpanzees who like walk around oh. on two legs all the time. And so it really kind of interesting development to finally come to this conclusion of like, uh, I guess it's a chimpanzee that like on average is like got a 10% larger skeleton or something like this. Yeah. It, it was kind of funny to see that whole progression. But I mean, sometimes like our, our, perception of different species and things it's based on our classification and these classifications can change like i've heard um uh do you know on youtube stephen milo 
No. He does a lot of like paleontology videos and stuff like this, but he had an expert on talking about, you know, the development of hominins. They said, well, like, you know, our, he was talking about like our Neanderthal and humans really separate species, like we're so similar. Maybe we, like we, I guess, know now that we could interbreed. Uh, and she was saying the expert that, well, like we're, th we think of ourselves as different species, but maybe we should really be thinking ourselves uh, of ourselves as two subspecies of Homo erectus is a yeah. better way to think of it. And it's like, you know, for me, that was almost like a mind blowing moment of like, oh, like, you know, if you just reconfigure the yeah. classification, it, it does kind of affect how you well, that's you, like, I go back to the first episode where I talk about the French propensity for system building, yes, where there's what's the border between genus and species. These are things we made up. Again, it's yeah. the border between Paraguay and Argentina. And that's something Morris is unquestionably interested in is hard borders getting made about things that are not necessarily uh, hard borders in that way. That's that's unquestionably something uh, he's interested in. And it, it definitely ties into that. I do think with this film, it's it's this is like the most just like discovery channel like pleasant sure. you know there's like in search of the giant squid you know kind yes. of like yeah. kind of thing and it's very pleasant but it's not super impactful i really think he thought he was going to get like an ahab obsessed type who's out doing crazy things trying to get it and maybe that's because stephen hawking does reveal himself to be a kind of bizarre guy with fanciful thoughts and the guy the naked mole rat guy in fast cheap yep. and out of control is bananas you know yep. like that that guy is really I mean, out of the most eccentric stuff you get with Clyde Roper is probably eating the squid and but it just feels yeah. like you know satisfying your curiosity with an adventurous spirit it does not feel crazy you know no it feels that feels like every every college professor I've known <laughs> it really does it just yes. feels like well we gotta make some in, in garlic and olive oil is that what he yeah. says the things he makes it in yeah um, right up in garlic and olive oil and uh yeah he he just feels like a, a nice regular guy this is this is maybe like a little bit like you're soaking in it where you keep waiting for the explosive turn to happen you keep waiting for the like the queasy part of it to happen but no he's pretty much he, he pretty much seems to be who he is you know and i do it reminds me a little of uh uh i don't know why i always bring this up in the confidence man by herman melville where the devil is taking on all these different forms right to convince people sort of rhetorically maneuver them into into unresolvable moral quandaries and everybody sort of gets fluxumed by the devil except for the Missourian who the devil starts to like propose this bad thing and he just punches him in the stomach and walks away right <laughs> and and it's just like this like salt of the earth guy who's like I know the solution to your problem boom you know like that kind of thing and Clyde Robert has that quality of it we talk about with Denny, Denny Fitch of like the quintessential American sort of uh, heroic yeah. figure Roper has that quality of like just a guy who's like no bullshit new englander like just very straight ahead trustworthy you know that that really he doesn't have some bananas in her life he unquestionably does if morris had made a different film about him would have gotten revealed i think that people like this college professors and well-known scientists you say talk about your area of expertise they have a shtick that they're going to put forward that they're used to talking about. There's no way to, it's much harder to get them to reveal interior landscapes when it's their job to talk about this thing over and over, you know? Yes. 
Um, what would you? Which one do you want to talk about next? It's it is wastebasket tactics. It feels in a, like in jumping a, around yeah. randomly between them. Well, talking about people who have a, a shtick of what they talk about, maybe Gretchen Warden is a good one to transition to. Smiling in a jar. Yeah. What do you think of her? I was very tempted to be like she should be in the heroes category, but I also I don't know about heroes, but I, I yeah. like her. Uh, it's definitely like my my stance on her. Um, <laughs> it's funny, like on our previous topic, you were talking about this idea of occult knowledge and true crime and what is taboo or um, yeah. She uses specifically the phrase uh, verboten, and she's not exactly talking about true crime, but she is talking about things that are tabloidy in their mm -hmm. in their luridness or are things that could easily be gawked at you know well this this episode is really explicitly about the connections and differences between the freak show and the museum right so it's yes. this museum of medical oddities and it's like skeleton of the one of the tallest people ever measured skeleton one of the shortest yeah. people ever measured and the shortest woman ever measured ended up working in a brothel so she's posed with the skull of the infant that died when she was trying to give birth to it because she's like two feet tall yeah. or whatever it is and and she just can't make it through childbirth so it's all those kind of oddities the man whose skeleton kept growing and grew together uh sort of conjoined twins fetuses and jars yeah. these kind of things that are associated with freak show stuff though very much associated with freak shows like people who have the 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 growths that look like horns that were like the unicorn women or the goat woman you know these yeah. kind of things the reptile man the skin conditions all of those kinds of stuff associated with freak shows and so this is about the relationship between freak show and the museum about legitimate and illegitimate science very explicitly and it's funny when you say occult knowledge i immediately think of this is from the surgeons college in philadelphia well how did surgeons get their corpses for the vast majority of time before it was legal for them illegally gra grave robbing yes grave robbing they were specifically associated with the most occultish in the traditional spooky sense of the word occultish behavior of grave robbing and criminals pillorying corpses and that kind of yeah. thing. And that was very much the way surgeons had to do it. If you need a skeleton, if you need bodies to operate it on, if you wanted to see organs to know what they look like to operate on them, you had to steal bodies, you know? Yeah. And, uh, sorry, go on. Oh no, well, I mean, she talks about our attitudes towards this that like, is it disrespectful to put a body on display? Well, like what's so respectful about putting a body in the ground? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's the bit of the out of sign, out of mind. I think it has yeah. a little to do with what we were talking about with your soaking in it, where wanting to see things that shouldn't be seen. This is, again, we've talked about it several times about what's the difference between entertainment and tragedy with true yeah. crime stuff. What's the, what's the line between freak show and museum you know really truly well she you talks know? a lot about the what is tabloid and what is legitimization of the freak show like she's trying to take yeah. the mythology out of it and you know it's sort of like if you're talking about this topic like the difference between calling somebody the elephant man and calling him mr merrick you know yeah for sure and the importance of kind of keeping in mind that there's a real i think she says real person or parts thereof <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like when she's talking about Harry Eastlick, especially who had uh, fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, I think is how you say it. Yeah, that's the uh, growing disease, right? It's like unimaginably horrific. And then, I don't know, at the same time, 
there's something kind of beautiful that's, about that, that skeleton is chilling that skeleton it's but once you said I've been that to his, this museum uh, a bunch of times i love this museum okay <laughs> sorry you know basically like your your bones don't stop growing and they're growing in a way that's just like fusing your spine together and keeps you from moving and it's uh, using your ribs together yeah it, your, it's, your... it's like shocking uh shocking disease uh, but when she talks about uh, Harry Eastlick's sister saying that it was easier to see him as a skeleton than alive and suffering, you know, that yeah. moment definitely stuck with me. And just, I think you're right about the out of sight, out of mind aspect where. But also I want to point out about her. She makes a lot of jokes. She's very funny. Oh, sure. She has a very wicked sense of humor about all this. And I think that that's what sort of why you can't just say it's as simple as being respectful. Anybody who spent any time around doctors and people in the medical field know that they are some of the least respectful people when it comes to yeah, uh, suffering and disease and pathology. You know, my, um, my mother had a violin student who went to medical school and she dropped out because specifically she was, she basically had a breakdown with how they were talking about and dealing with these uh, dead bodies for discussion yeah you know like that, that was sort of a, a point that you like couldn't couldn't get across so um that that was actually like the end of her medical career at school was just like i don't like the way that you're talking about these bodies and dealing with them <laughs> you know but also i feel like if you're talking about what is and isn't respectful i don't feel like making jokes is inherently a disrespectful thing agree 100 you know, i feel like when you're talking about like trying to be respectful with people like I, I make jokes with or even about people I, I really respect all the time I think that's normal and I think like what's actually not respectful is that kind of uh, patronization of like I have to be super serious when I'm around you yeah. yes I agree completely I think that that the meaning and function of humor is one of the more complicated mysterious things in human existence I think that solemnity as some kind of a, a meaningful counterweight to humor is a very false reading of the meaning of those mechanisms. I, I think that, uh, you know, I think it's very complicated to talk about this stuff and understand this stuff. And I'm distrustful of people who say, oh, you're making fun of something as inherently meaning you're devaluing it. You're not taking it seriously. You're not giving it respect. It goes back to what we talked about where Errol Morris always, especially early in his career, being accused of yokalizing and making fun of his subjects, you know, that they're, that they're being the butt of his jokes. I think that they're funny and he's seeing their humor and he's pointing out their humor and weirdness. But I think it's more complicated than just look at the freaks and laugh. It's not yep. Napoleon Dynamite. You know what I mean? It's not just like that guy has a funny hairstyle. Ha ha ha. It's it's much more complicated than that. Like true humor is, you know. Well, you also look at people who have serious disabilities, who have serious illnesses, and often they have a very good sense of humor about that. That's a way of. Yeah addressing it, dealing with it. And like um, Gretchen Warden talks about how she had uh, Hodgkinson's, Hodgkin's disease? Hodgkinson's disease. There's an apostrophe in there somewhere, right? Um, and, you know, she's, like you said, somebody who makes a lot of jokes and she's somebody who has a sense of humor. And I think, you know, I, 
And she also has a sense of beauty. And I think those are interlinked. Yeah. The way she describes some of the specimens and some of the photos of them, it's it's yes. a curatorial eye on par with the museum directors. And I think yeah. that her sense of humor and her sense of beauty are interlinked. And in my experience of the world, people with a sense of humor and a sense of beauty frequently have them interlinked together in some way. Humorless people have a very bad sense of beauty frequently. I don't want to say usually uh, because a lot of poets are utterly humorless and have finely attuned senses of beauty, you know? Um, but I think that they, they do have a relationship that, that feels complementary. They don't get in the way of each other. I feel like she does have such a lovely sense of beauty because she has a lovely sense of humor in some ways. Like when he asks her, about like how these pathologies happen. She says, how come you don't have a horn? And she says, how do you know I don't? You know, yeah. it's a funny answer, but it's also showing her thinking about, you know, you're limiting the way you're thinking about me. You're limiting your sense of what's normal and not normal. I might have it hidden somewhere on my body. You know, the way you're interpreting me and which wastebasket you're putting my tax on in might be completely wrong. You know what I mean? Right. Um. And a lot of this stuff, it, it is in degrees too. I mean, like everyone's got something a little bit off about them if you really think about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's funny, like one of the things she even lists, like Vitilago, I have Vitilago, you know, it, it doesn't yeah. show up in any sort of obvious place, but you know, like clearly that's enough to put somebody in this museum, so. Well, this you is know, one of the questions of this, yeah. of this is what is pathological? And it's the same question yeah. that Michael Stone is asking back in Mr. Personality and has sort of formed a spine for a lot of these discussions is what do we mean by pathological? In his case, it's what's a pathological mind. In this case, it's what's pathological physiology, you know, is it, is it, how are we defining abnormality in that way? Uh, and I think that she has a lot of, I think she has a lot of, uh, sympathy and empathy and connection to her specimens uh, that that there really is a sense of love connection there somehow that she's that if something is pathological she still sees herself in it she sort of understands yep. that the border between normal and pathology is very random triggers frequently it's a virus or a disease or some That's... twist of fate that it's not that it's not a clear border well, that it's a it's regular between... human like a, something that are taken to the extreme, you yeah. know, it might be something that like a lot of people have and it's just taken further. It's, it's pushed to its limit. It's, it's, um, it's hard to qualify, like, you know, where the boundary is between what is a, what's a normal and what's an abnormal person, you know, even though like we probably have an idea of what this is, but you know, if you're talking about physiologically, like, I, I don't think there is such a thing as an ideal person, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think she'd be the quickest to say that we all have bumps and rashes. You know, I mean, like, if, if you she look talks historically, about... there's like yeah. examples of, um, I mean, racist examples of like putting pygmy people on display. Yeah. And it's like, you know, look how like physically strange they are by our standards, but you know, like, if, well, that's, you know, if you, that's a freak show staple is the shrunken yes. heads, you know, that's, that's very much part of uh, the history of it, but there's also shrunken head adjacent things in this. Yep. Um, 
in this museum. My favorite thing in the museum that doesn't come up in the in the documentary at all is they have drawers and drawers of display drawers that you open with like a glass sheet over them of things yeah. that people were choking on that surgeons had to remove, like buttons and screws and safety pins and stuff. Oh my God, you it's just horrifying broken teeth. I was reading about those uh, toy guns where like the suction would get caught in kids throat and it's like a perfect plunger it's oh no it's really scary and then like going through all the steps to try to get the toy company to recall that and all that stuff it was it was kind of horrific to read about but oh yeah people God. do swallow some some terrible things if yeah. you just look at like a drawer full of rusty's 1850s safety pins you're like oh my god this was caught in somebody's throat um but i think like there is a there is a disrespectful way of looking at somebody after they die you know I, yeah for sure um i mean i was sort of thinking about like examples like the the hot and Todd venus was sort of on my mind a little bit thinking about like after her death being put on display and being still kind of treated like a a specimen you know yeah in a dehumanizing way it's it's hard to say what the what the boundaries of our respect are for when somebody dies but also you consider you know, disrespectful kind of... that when my son was young i used to say behave or i'm going to ship you off to the hot and tots do you consider okay. that disrespectful or no <laughs> to, to your son or to the hot and tots to my son <laughs> <laughs> um but like she she does kind of get into this question of this idea of being as useful after death as before and you know if, if a body can continue to serve humanity and sort of making me think what that really means like what we can yeah learn from a person by keeping their body and looking at them after um and she shares with up, like, Roper other... this love of the natural world even when it's the diseased natural world it's this connection to this yes. i don't know how to describe well, like, it any better did you did you follow the whole story with the kennewick man no this like nine thousand year old body they found in kennewick washington it was like incredibly interesting um the, i mean it was sort of famous infamous because they you know did a reconstruction and they said well like this person's features are more european than american from nine thousand yeah. years ago and what what does that mean and i think like later studies show that he was probably like related to i knew people like the indigenous japanese uh who are like their features do look a little bit more european um mm -hmm. but he probably came from like japan east russia uh but like it turned into a massive legal battle with um, indigenous groups about like who owns this body and whether you can study the body and basically uh the scientists lost and he got buried and you know it feels like a loss to science that this person who like really like I, I don't want to get myself into too much trouble, but I feel like you can't tie a person who died nine thousand years ago to any existing tribe, any anyone today. Like I, I feel like it was sort of I don't know. I, I think it was it was maybe wrong to put him back in the ground. But yeah, you know, it's it's hard to say what those boundaries are if it's respectful or disrespectful. What's I yeah. agree with her. What's so respectful about being buried underground? Yeah, you know. And also the kind of 
presupposing of people's wishes. A lot of the specimens yes. are donated to Muter Museum. A lot of the people are, you know, they sit for the wax masks of all the various skin diseases because yeah. they want to be studied. They want this to be solved. They want this to be useful. The idea that that this is a freak show. I mean, you read about, um, you know, a lot of people in the freak shows who were uh, actually completely content with being part of it and, and enjoyed it that. It was a way to make a living. Way. It was a way to, yeah, actually, you know. But also felt like exposing themselves to the world. It took the sting out of it. They well, Sometimes it's people I mean, that are hidden away their whole lives yeah. as a shame that come out and get to interact with an audience. It's like... You know? uh, everywhere in the world you're not supposed to have this this thing which is considered a defect and a freak show is the one place where like oh i'm supposed to have it i can yeah. show it it's like people are are fine seeing it you know so i think like it is a more complicated relationship with the freak show than just saying like these are the purely exploitative and disrespectful yeah. and you know like and same thing with the the science i mean thinking of the, the i mean not to solve movie, that line about like oh be maybe he's being of course, of course, yeah. they are grotesque, but I think like it's more complicated than just writing it off like that. And like I think I about that line from the Elephant Man of like, well, like is he only being stared at all over again? You know, and yeah. like that whole film is basically a journey of a man going from, you know, being looked at to being the one doing the looking. You know, where he's the guest at a performance, seeing his girlfriend do. A, some kind of a, I forget what they were called, the, the, the show, it was a play, a theater yeah. thing, <laughs> in a movie. Uh, there was like a specific name for it, and I forget now what that, that I can't show remember was. this part. Anyway, uh, um, that's, that's irrelevant, but you know, I think like the distinction between a freak show and science, it's, you know, a little bit like, uh, again, the, this unclear border between uh, Argentina and Paraguay and also like you know the the ways we think about what is respectful or disrespectful after somebody dies are also complicated you know and the idea of i mean i like the idea of being useful after i'm dead you know i would love it if um, if one of my organs could go and help somebody who's having a hard time yeah you know i would sure. even like well that's like organ donation so yeah. whenever i hear people say like i would never be an organ donor it's like what are you talking this seems like the most selfish decision i, I really feel made. like when i'm dead i'm not gonna care like you know? of course you're not gonna care but it's also like you can help somebody you can help somebody at the exact actually, moment you, know? you become valueless you know what yes. i mean like you exactly can, you can do you can probably be more helpful than you were your entire fucking worthless life you know because the type of people who don't want to donate their organs are always, you know, the kind of people that are not contributing much to begin with, in my opinion. Um, but it it does feel like that was one of those things that always feels crazy to me. Like who wouldn't who wouldn't do that? Yeah. Why wouldn't you be an organ donor? It feels so beyond the pale for selfishness to me. It just feels inconceivable. But I also understand, you know, that that there is something grotesque and upsetting about it to people as well. But I do I do feel come from that scientist rationalist mindset as much as I joke about being Boonwellian. I do have a lot of respect and love for science that this, I come from a family of scientists and I do uh, have a, a lot of enthusiasm for it. And I feel like if there's been any human progress, it's almost exclusively scientific progress. You know, there's there's been no other progress that I can see uh, apart from scientific progress, you know? 
Well, since we're talking about what happens after we die, do you want to transition into harvesting me? Or I just remember. Or, shit, I screwed that up. <laughs> oh my god. Harvesting I, I, me sounds like the, the crown episode because they harvest <laughs> your head, but <laughs> you're right. Because doesn't we also talk about uh no, that's that's in harvesting me. How are we getting uh, these two so confused? We've gotten through all of this and have there's only two none left. I, I think like it's just it's oh it's interesting. I did want to mention before we like, leave smiling in a jar, uh that it's it, I was trying to think of there's not um a lot of uh films like this in Errol Morris's filmography and uh and I was trying to think like what could I compare to and it said oh the Elsa Dorfman movie which we haven't even yeah. mentioned which you know, uh, doesn't really get talked about that much it's just a regular documentary it's not yeah. an Errol Morris film it's just a regular follow a lady around with a camera and talk about her work documentary anybody could have made it but it's about somebody who has an eye for things it's a photographer who really has a specific eye for what's beautiful and interesting in the world and i think that that's an interesting comparison to gretchen Morden if you think of her as an elsa oh, dorfman type yeah yeah i mean even have you seen the documentary sansara no it's um i think ron ron frick who did that okay uh anyway like there are shots and it's uh, all shot in like 70 millimeter gorgeous no narration, just showing you kind of beautiful image after beautiful image. And one of the sections is on, I think it's like fetuses or stillborns that are preserved and it's showing you this and like, it's beautiful actually, you know, you can see what, what she's describing um, when she talks about seeing them as beautiful, Richard yeah. Morden. Like well, it's, it's, specifically, it's understandable. Like, yeah. I don't think it, it's like a crazy thing to be like, these specimens are beautiful in some way beautiful to look at yeah elsa dorfman is like a um is a, a, a portrait photographer too and so you think about that's what a lot of these these are like it's a portrait museum specifically the muter museum too that they're trying to give biographical info and contextualize them as human beings that it's not specimen 48 and the description of the disease that they put names and life stories to the specimens there, that they really want them to be known in a human way uh, to a certain extent. And it, and it does remind me of, of portraits of people in the same way. It is, it is, again, an interesting, what's the line between art museum and scientific museum sure. too? It's uh, why, why do we look at these things? Why do we want to look at a living person we don't know? Why do we want to look at a dead person we don't know? You know, just to, to kind of draw those associations. Like the, um, the photographs of uh, Jesse James after he was killed getting yeah. like, circulated and people paying to go and look at his body. Like it's, it's very similar um, kind of idea. For sure. Let's move on to, to yeah. bodies that, that are not dead bodies. Okay. Let's move I, on to I Dismember Mama. Right. To living corpses that continue to live that will be resurrected. Maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I'm very confident. I think the immortality community, I'll be more like a friend than mother and son. What's interesting to me about uh, Sol Kent is he takes sort of a nugget of science. There's some like core of uh, scientific thought going on here and uses it to basically invent a belief system, like a religion, <laughs> you know, and it's like, um, I, it, I like, I think when people talk about science versus religion, it's saying, well, science is, uh, it's not a belief system, it's a methodology. 
but yeah. you can see how often things do get blurred. You know, it does fall into the idea of belief and faith and things like that. Um, and like, I, I've always been kind of interested in 20th century religions and cults and how they kind of reflect the time period in a way that uh, you understand that religions that came out of you know, 2000 years ago reflect their time periods, but yeah. you know, it's like Scientology, it's got, of course, uh, uh, all these like science fiction kind of elements, which feel very California specific UFO to cults of the 50s and 60s 1950s, you know, are and so amazing. <laughs> like, uh, but, you know, I think like Saul Kent, it's like this very kind of Baroque thing that comes out of like a nugget of what he feels is scientific, but it's it's religion. He's, he's created this religion in his mind of yeah. an afterlife where like I'll be immortal forever. And, like, and just to walk through the story of the episode, okay. he's one of the, he coins the word cryonics. He's one of the early inventors of this idea that if you take somebody, cut off their head because preserving the whole body is too much in the future they'll figure out how to unfreeze it out of the cryo cryonic freezing and reattach it to new body grow a new body i believe is what he suggests is most likely and bring it back to life and people will be able to live uh, sort of perpetually this way when his mother is starting to get dementia and lose it uh i believe she has cardiac arrest his mom, before she's quite declared dead, is taken and put into cryonic freezing by having her head yep. cut off. So this is this is the thrust of it. This is a crime adjacent series as well because yeah. he's not accused of being the doctor. Who this did almost the made it into the crime yeah. category because there's some question if uh, maybe she was not dead when they decided to cut her head off to keep her head fresh <laughs> to freeze yeah. it. Um, and yeah. uh, and it's also belongs in the the intelligence category as well, where yeah. he's an intelligent scientist. He's not a dummy, but he's definitely in the Rick Rosner, Christian Langellen school of so smart it has made him unable to function correctly. You know, there there's something about his intelligence that has made him cuckoo. You know, like his what's wrong with him is tied directly to how smart he is. Well, again, talking about like trying to impose structure and rationality on real life, on an irrational existence. Like he talks about his fear of death. Yeah. And it's like, wait, like it's just the end of everything. Like that's that's the worst thing that there can be. Like, yeah. you know, and I feel like everything. And he says, everybody's afraid this. to die. If there's a gun to your head, do you want someone to pull the trigger or put it down? And if you say, put it down, then you're afraid to die. And it's like, I'm not sure that means I'm afraid to die necessarily, you know? But it's, it's like a lack of acceptance that like, yeah, we die. You know, he's, yeah. he, he sort of refuses to believe this. And, you know, and like, to me, it's so similar to how people will talk about like, um, you know, when I die and go to heaven and yada, da, it's going to yeah. be all of this but like he grounds it in his own sort of scientific understanding um his idea that they'll unfreeze you in the future cure all your ailments give you a new body um because you know if you didn't afford if you couldn't afford to freeze your whole body you just get your head frozen and they'll give you a new body of course never mind that your brain is swiss cheese they're trying to also that your brain isn't isn't your body isn't modular like that. Your brain is yeah. attached to a nervous system which yeah, runs well, throughout that, your body. Uh, infamous like your, experiment your with the monkey 
uh, I think a rhesus monkey yeah. head transplant. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, technically you can do it, but you can't reattach all the nerves and like it's, yeah. you know, oh, the monkey like screamed in pain for three days and died. It was a success. <laughs> the experiment was a success, you know. Yeah. Uh, but like, no, it's true that like the way our brain is connected to our nerves, it's not like a, it's not like a bat in a jar. It's it's a, a part of a system, you know. Yeah. An it's, interconnected it's, system and like. The body is not modular. Period. I mean, there are like philosophical kind of questions that come up too, where if you're talking about like, well, if you have uh, Alzheimer's and stroke riddled brain, they'll fix your brain and they'll give you a new body. And it's like the ship of Theseus where eventually like, boy, if you're not <laughs> the same person anymore. Like, yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've had this like d discussion about the, <laughs> the Star Trek teleporters uh, yeah. where like, I would never want to get in one because like, you would die when you go in and whatever comes out the other end has all your memories and is like an exact duplicate of you but your you your consciousness when you step into that machine would end yeah <laughs> you know? people like, are very confident about what consciousness is that's what i find very strange about people you know every neurologist we talked about this they call it the hard problem understanding yep. consciousness it has been intractable what it is where it comes from how it's generated how to study it it's the hard problem right and this is the smartest people in the world call it the hard problem there's yes. basically nothing we've attempted to study in the universe that's had more study directed at by a variety of sources that has been intractable we don't know anything about consciousness right now that we didn't know from the beginning of humanity there's just we we we're not even really sure enough about the brain how to how to affect it like anesthesia works but we don't know why if you talk to any anesthesiologist and you say why does this actually work they're like we know the buttons to press to make it happen we have no idea why pressing those buttons causes consciousness to blip away for a certain amount of time under yeah. our control. We don't know what it is and where it goes then, right? And if it's just your inability to form memories in that moment, like uh, because some people can sort of push through it and form memories even when they're anesthetized and not feeling anything. We just don't know what this is. And there's a lot of people very confident that they know exactly what consciousness is. That's part of the reason people are like, AI will have consciousness. And I'm like, I don't think that's what consciousness is. I don't think it can be attached to inorganics. I don't, I don't think that's the definition of it. That's why I will never be sad. Robots doing something you don't like, turn it off, reprogram it. Like it's never going to be a conscious thing. Like throw it in the toilet when you're done with it. You know, it's just like, they're not alive. They don't, they don't matter. It's like, why, why what's my my cell phone what's it thinking it's like your cell phone well, is thinking nothing the one kind know? of argument i've heard for what might make an artificial intelligence it wouldn't be a single computer it would be a massive network almost like the internet where each individual computer would function like a neuron and you could kind of construct an intelligence that way but, but... that's just a network of electronics yes. that's again it's but not that's... consciousness right well but then like people argue to what extent our consciousness, it, like that is the mystery thing because our brain, as much as we understand it is, is like it runs we on electrical signals. You don't understand brains I know, I know. at all. But I, the, like, just for the record, right. you don't know no, anything I, I, I agree about with how this, brains but I'm, work. I'm saying like, you know, we, if we don't know where consciousness comes from, like our, our understanding of our brain is is not like radically different than the way we would understand computers, which tells you that there's like a missing piece of the puzzle, but yeah, you know, and like it, it almost goes back to 
Temple Grandin and that uh, anthropologist on Mars essay yeah. where it's like, oh, like, does she have it in your life or not? Like, you know, I, it's hard to say what consciousness is because, yeah, you know, we don't really know problem. what produces it, but we know that it is a thing. But then it's also like, I mean, the brain, it's for such a delicate organ, sometimes it's shocking, like what can be done to it? You know, yeah. you have people have a stroke, they lose half their brain, they have to learn how to walk and talk again, they train the other part of their brain to do yeah. it and compensate. And Yeah, people survive um, after lobotomies. That's just yeah. going in with a wire scoop yeah, the, and pulling out random chunks. There, there's you know? a famous case of, uh, I think a guy working on a railroad who got the pipe through his head. Yeah. And he was yeah. fine. They say like, well, maybe his personality was a little bit different after he was more aggressive, but he's also a guy who had a pipe through his head, yeah. you know. Uh, it's like for, for something that seems like a delicate organ that like any kind of tiny little thing should set it off. It's like, oh, you can jam a chunk through it. You could cut out big chunks and it still functions, you know. Yeah. It's... Um, it's I was reading, strange. there's an interview with the actress, uh, Amelia Clark, where she was talking about having her... Uh, I think it was a stroke, brain she stroke. Had, and two aneurysms. Two aneurysms, thank you. Um, and, you know, parts of her brain are basically dead or gone. And she was sort of discussing this and, you know, what that means. But, uh, like, the, the durability of the human brain is sometimes shocking to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, I it, for me, it feels so delicate. And it feels like, um, okay, this is who I am. But then if you can rip a chunk out and I'm still kind of alive and still kind of conscious, but like a piece of my personality is gone, then what does that say about my consciousness right now? If it's like an yeah. amalgam of things, if it's really, you know, it makes you question the the nature of the soul when you can have um, brain damage and still have consciousness, but like you're missing a part of yourself, you know. Or when you can still have a brain and have Alzheimer's and everyone agrees the person that was you has disappeared in some yes. fundamental way. That, that's you know, something that's... that really... Uh, terrifies me you know i feel like it completely terrifies me my dad is always like if i have alzheimer's let's go out on a hunting trip yeah. and you just leave me out there you know I, that's like the one that like there are so many diseases where i feel like you know if uh, if i had that disease oh like i'd fight through it i would I yeah would, you know i would tr try to fight through that or i would I try would to die, hang on to life you know if I had, it, well yeah. you know you would at least try like you know talking about gretchen boarding getting uh diagnosed with hodgkin's disease it's like you know she was expected to die and she didn't you know people do survive things. i would fight through even if i thought i was dying because we're all dying of something but if i had like a degenerative brain condition no. and like everyone's neurodegenerative you know, like, diseases are like my list of like i, I, I would want to be like you know <laughs> jack nicholson way. in one floor of the cuckoo's nest like you have my permission to just like smother me to death you know that's is that is my um, number one fear it's like and people are like you're not afraid of drowning like no drown i love scuba diving drowning actually seems like a perfectly like if i gotta go in some way you know like let me go the way mengala went no i'm just kidding um it's uh so, so it's wrong there are things that i'm afraid of more than death <laughs> so. well, but that's absolutely death is death death is one of the that there is an end in consciousness yeah. ends is a very big relief that this will all be over creates a lot of meaning to life and is not actually terrifying to me. The idea of perpetually going on uh, is is far more terrifying to me than, than having a limited space to live in. But it's also interesting, we're talking about Temple Grandin and we mentioned last episode, Denny Fitch, 
Sal Ken's driven so much by this fear of dying and Tim McGrattan is not afraid to die. She talks about how she's yeah. not afraid to die. It's one of her noble qualities, and even she's... after she's come to terms with not believing in an afterlife. Yeah, she has no illusions about like uh, heaven or an afterlife. And she says, you know, well, you know, it's just the oxygen starved brain. I feel like that kind of notion is is probably what's breaking Saul Kent's brain a little bit. Yeah. You know, I feel like he needs to construct his own afterlife, his own idea of a life after death, because otherwise life's intolerable for this man, yeah. you know, and you, you kind of understand the mechanism why so many cultures would develop afterlives, but most afterlives, you realize in most religions and cultures are not that elaborate, actually. Like, I always think it's interesting when, you know, you look at um, certain cultures where the, the soul is synonymous with the word breath. It's the yeah. same thing. It's like, well, your breath left your body, it went up into the sky, that's it. Yeah, that, that's the extent of our understanding of life after death. You well, know? it's also or it's like Christian heaven or or the Norse mythological heaven. You just go and sit by God now. Yeah. You know, like you get you get a seat near God. There you go. You know, and it's not elucidated more than that. Or you have a concept like Sheol, which is very close to, you know, Saul Kent's scientific understanding of death, which is like. I guess you just kind of stop existing. You're yeah. in the dark, you know, for forever. That's kind of, but I, you know, it's such a contrast to him being afraid of death to, to Denny Fitch being like, you know, are we in love? Or are we at war? Last thing she said to me was, I love you. See you soon. I love you. We're good. I'm ready to die. Yeah. And that's so incredibly powerful to just say, I've had my full life. I've done the things I want to do. I love flying and being a pilot. I love my wife and kids. I know I'm only 46 and I thought I had a whole life ahead of me, but um, but I'm actually ready for this and I'm not afraid. And that kind of fearlessness, I think, is, is fundamentally, uh, if not heroic, then admirable. It's certainly the state we all want to be in. There's something yes. pathetic about Saul Kent. There's something deeply pathetic about his fear of death you know uh and well, in a way like an that, acceptance like, of death shows a kind of contentment with life that you're okay with the life you've led the life you've had i think you know it, it's tempting to have uh an, a fantasy of an afterlife that's very important to you if you have unfulfilled desires if you have regrets you know if you have a lot of things like this yeah but it's but it's also he just seems like he wants to be friends with his mom. It also feels like he loved his mom yeah. so much he can't conceive of anything else. It's very, it's very strange. And it's you know, it's very strange you know, when he's talking about like, well, maybe in the distant future and we meet each other and we say that we were right and you know, we'll our bodies will be able to swap that. We'll be more like friends than like mother and so it's it's a very strange kind of path that he goes down. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, very elaborate fantasy. Yeah. And it's also the funny thing about this one, too, to me, is the only other time that decapitations are mentioned in any of these are, do you remember? In the Killer Inside Me episode, Danny Rollins oh. decapitating young co-eds and sort of setting their bodies about. And That's you right, remember, yeah. oh, he's sexually I thought obsessed. maybe Mr. Personality brought up... Uh... Oh, probably he does too, but, uh, right? Yeah. But he's probably—I think he's talking about Danny Rollins at one point okay. too. Um, but uh, but that's that's—it's a similar like. You are also decapitating young women because you're too hyper focused on them, Danny Rollins. Like Saul Kent, what divides you from Danny Rollins? That you did it on the force of good because you love them. I'm sure that Danny Rollins has some very like 
this was about love type of justification, knowing what kind of wiener he is, that he's not like one of those really angry punish them serial killers, you know, that that um that it has that similar like cutting their heads off to preserve them and preserve this moment in time and stage a scene kind of quality <laughs> to each other, you know, it, yeah. it it has a similar like there's almost no way to cut off somebody's head and be able to frame it nobly there's just something about the very act of it that that becomes degenerate it just does you know it, it's maybe it's a very human thing like where we're talking about the stomach going through the squid brain it just immediately becomes like a, a very vile act in and of itself yeah well it, i mean again it kind of goes back to the the tabloid aspect where it's shocking i mean the the title of this documentary i just remember mama is like a tabloid headline yeah and you just hear that and you're like you know and a a play of course on i remember mama you know right right so but it's um it's that rationalization like you know is one rationalization for why i would dismember somebody's head more acceptable than another rationalization yeah it's hard to say. I mean, I would say probably in this probably, case, there's probably a difference between him and a serial killer. But it feels like this, this this episode like, reminded me of the end of um, Thin Blue Line, where he gets David Harris's confession, and yeah. he's sort of saying, "How do you know this?" And David Harris says, "Because I'm the man who knows." Where Errol oh, Morris asks him a question, he says, "There's no statute of limitations on murder." At the very end, it has that same sort of like. I can't fully confess to what I've done because it's bad, but I'm going to admit it to you without fully confessing. It has a similar quality. It's hard not yeah. to think of criminals with this, even though I fundamentally don't think of him as a criminal. I really, no, I really but don't. It feels like a less black and white thing than it yeah. probably should, you know? <laughs> uh, but like, also I, I was thinking about the, um, Mr. Personality when Saul Kent is going on about the five kinds of people. <laughs> yeah. his, his classification of like well there's the hardcore deathists there's the softcore deathists there's the closet immortalists softcore immortalists hardcore immortalists and i'm a hardcore immortalist it's like holy smokes and then he <laughs> talks then he gives these definitions that are very they're similar to michael stone where it's like you're just making stuff up you're pushing people in categories that are sort of to your advantage like people who disagree with me have a belief system that I'm accusing them of that they would probably disagree with. Yeah. You know what I mean? The way no, well, if, if you try to disagree with Saul Kent, I feel like he would be oh, like, you're a hardcore deathist. Yeah, that's that's a, such a hardcore deathist thing to say. Yeah, exactly. That it's ascribing a value system to my enemy that they do not have. That's something that that everybody does. It's I feel like it's a disease that the modern American left particularly has of like there's bad enough people in this world you don't need to make up what their value system is you can beat them on their own professed merits you know what i mean like you can win this argument without being like you know they're all hardcore deathists you know Um, you just don't need to to do that to project these arguments project some kind of value system onto them and argue with what you what your idea of them is you know it's I, i mean it's easier because you probably had those debates in your head with your fantasy version of whatever the person arguing with you is. So it, it's easier to kind of just like project that onto a person yeah. than to like 
actually address their yeah to call somebody a a deathist rather than acknowledge maybe they actually have a very healthy view of life and existence you know maybe you should be a hardcore deathist because temple grandin is you know and she's somebody that i feel like is a healthy way to live you know and and denny fitch is he a softcore deathist well it seems like he's also got it got it figured out in some way just the ascribing of of categorization like if you go through when morris is having uh michael stone diagnose literary figures and put them in the different zones you know and it becomes so silly yeah Yeah. exactly just becomes so silly it's the same thing well let's go through each of these characters that we've discussed in third person and are you gonna is is joan darty the uh crime scene cleanup she seems like a hardcore deathist to me yeah. she seems like a pretty hardcore deathist you know josh harris closet immortalist it sounds like maybe even a hardcore immortalist you know oh where are uh, put all these may, maybe yeah definitely uh josh harris is in search of his own form of immortality yeah you know, it's, it's different a, a closet immortalist who knows she's maybe a maybe a softcore immortalist like maybe <laughs> you can't live forever but your your body can no, I, I feel like she's a, she's a, a hardcore. I'm, I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. But you know, you know what I do love though too that I also thought of when he's interviewing her, and they start talking about how do you want your remains to be preserved? Do you want to be freeze dried or plastinated? And it's so much like the cryonic talk in some way. It's just like, well, why couldn't a freeze dried person? be brought back to life if we're talking about the cryonics you know what's about being plastinated well it's it's so funny that episode ends with Gretchen Warden where the episode gets its title from is her talking about how she could imagine Errol Morris's head on display smiling in a jar you know because he's on this uh, Interatron screen and it's like looking into him uh just just the floating head so it's it's a funny connection that you know in there it's a joke and in Saul Kent's case it's like deadly serious it's his entire <laughs> belief system that like no this head must live forever <laughs> but cryonics like I don't know maybe that I'm, one could be called frowning in a jar couldn't it frowning in a jar yeah no like I, I'm I don't know much about this field but I feel like it's pretty close to pseudoscience right there is some evidence that like yeah you can be revived when you're frozen but if you're talking about like living into the next aeon i don't think there's anything to show you that get that's... you get you get humidity the yeah. liquid in it and the cells burst it's it's total pseudoscience it, it would be much more to be freeze-dried sort of egyptian style to be well preserved the way the the pharaoh's corpses are and the mummies <laughs> ancient egyptians well maybe they'll be brought back to life someday well yeah. they took too much of their brains out when they i know because just... they didn't think the brains yeah they thought they flip the brains in the heart to them that you're I mean, when you're talking about like egyptian religion that's also um a religion that's based around this idea of uh not literal immortality but you know sort of okay the pharaoh's going to keep ruling on after he's dead and he's going to have all these treasures and slaves and everything to, to govern over into the afterlife you know it was the sort of materialist idea of a uh, of an afterlife which it's not so different from what what uh, Salt Kent is saying. Like he's he's talking about an afterlife where you can bring if, your consciousness. Yeah, to, if you per- yeah. if you preserve the body correctly, it will survive to the afterlife. You know, yes. exact it's the exact same thing. No, I think my understanding of that cryonics is is beyond pseudoscience. That there's just there's nothing to it. 
that yeah. you know that there's really yeah. I think you know, like, you're you're yeah. just as well off you know no. finding a I chicken mean, bone if you and preserve a body like you, you've got the Otzi the Iceman like you know and that's that's a very well preserved body that was frozen naturally yeah um, you know you can learn a lot from a body like that but you can't bring them back to life like the closest I think you can get is if you know somebody froze uh, froze out getting locked out of their house and then they revive them and you know their heart rate stop and they come back like there are cases like this but it's yeah. it's not on the same kind of scale that these guys are thinking of yeah and it's you know i guess the idea is what method do we have for most well preserving the body so that yeah. you know but I, again i think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of consciousness i don't i don't think your consciousness again it's like the act of seeing with one's own eyes that we talked about of just you become a piece of meat at some point and your breath, if that is your soul leaves you and it's yeah. just, it's just gone. It really is. And I, and I don't know that I believe there's a way to zap it back into existence, even with the material in there. I think that you'd have something close to amnesia if you did manage to bring these people back to life, that it, that it, it, it would probably resemble somebody with such an impaired neurological sense of self that they would no longer be themselves in any rational sense. They'd be more like an Alzheimer's patient or somebody well, with amnesia or somebody I mean, who's been lobotomized. Going back to his comment, uh, Saul Kent's comment about Frankenstein being, uh, Dr. Frankenstein being his hero, it's almost like you'd be creating a new person. Yeah. Whatever you construct, it's not the person that died. It's, it's something new cobbled together, you know, and it gets, I mean, when he starts describing like all his ideas about like people swapping bodies and like, Hey, maybe you'll have more than one body. Like, yeah, you know, it doesn't feel like he's really considered what that means in terms of consciousness, in terms of like identity, you know, yeah. he has such a like fluid kind of view of identity where he's like, you know, in the future, you'll be able to like switch over and be a woman and then switch back like a switch being a man. And, all in the same afternoon kind of attitude and it's like well you know then what does that really mean for those identities if it becomes sort of that well, it's also that just fluid, like, but... what are you talking about this is yeah. impossible you know what well, i mean of course like, but like, like you know, it's one of those things too where it's just like let's be real man you know yeah the amount of resources required to do this means that it would be an incredibly specialized thing there's just never going to be enough resources on the planet to make some ultra futurist ideas come true there's not enough resources there's not enough plastics there's not enough energy there's not enough organic material for somebody to be flipping between bodies randomly in the middle of the afternoon it's just it will never work like that what are you talking about dude you know i feel like even within his own fantasies like he's not really thought through what the ramifications of this are you know yeah uh, and like again it kind of comes back to that sort of weird comment of like well you know in the future my mother and i we won't be like mother and son we'll be more like friends and it's, it's this idea of kind of yes. escaping to some new identity and you know be becoming something other than yourself so this is classic errol morris self-deceiver yeah. no sense of self-awareness yes. this is a very classic Errol Morris character. Uh, this is a really, a really fun one. I know you strongly dislike him, so oh, yeah, do you not yeah. enjoy the episode because of Oh, it? no, the episode's great. I, I just, I don't like him. <laughs> Which is, is a very different me, thing than, right? yeah. He's an interesting subject, me. of oh, course. Sorry. 
I oh, keep stepping on you because I'm going to say because harvesting me is an episode that I have a lot of trouble watching because I dislike Josh Harris so much. I, okay, I like, well, hate sitting through this episode because I he's just in the punchable face club, man. He's just he's terrible, terrible. I can't be around him. You know, I mean, and I don't. Josh even Harris feels a like a, a kind of a flip side to Salt Kent in a way. Like I think these two it sort of makes sense to talk about close together. Um, I keep harvesting me. I keep messing up the titles. Uh, I just remember Mama. I keep accidentally calling it We Live in Public because that's the name of his internet. Yes, I, that's what I think is the title of the episode. So Harvesting Me must be the, the I Just Remember Mama episode. It, it's 17 episodes. I did my best to all the yeah. names, everybody's names and things. Anyway. We haven't uh, fucked up that much, I don't feel like. I think we've done I, I hope not. Anyway, um, I, I feel like maybe I have a couple times, but uh, Harvesting Me it's about this guy, Josh Harris, who's, um, he was like a dot-com millionaire. He talks about making- uh, He founded like the, Jupiter. Okay, whatever I don't know that, what that is. is. <laughs> I don't know what it is either, but it was worth, he got like $40 million dollars in well, one day. He, he got like $36 million and then lost most of it almost immediately, or not immediately, but uh, shortly after. It's funny him talking about like, when that happens again, I'll know how to deal with it better. And I, I've gone through my nouveau rich phase and it's like, I don't think there's going to be a next time. Pal. Yeah, it's you like know? fun. Even the way he talks about, like, I'm a very gifted businessman. It's uh, exceptionally gifted amateur. He keeps exceptionally gifted amateur. He he does kind of know to throw an amateur to downplay it, but like, yeah. but also like, it had nothing to do with being a businessman. That the dot com boom. <laughs> You know? Yeah, that's something that nobody even knows what it was or what it did. And you and I know perfectly large amount about a few subjects. And you and I are both, what the fuck is Jupiter? You know, it's probably one of the, it might be a search engine, might be an well, emailer. Who the hell I mean, knows? the whole thing was speculative. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's like Dutch tulips. Jupiter, what's, I, I bet it's going to be worth a lot someday. Throw, throw money at it. Oh, wait, yeah. it's worth $36 million. Oh, wait, it's worth nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, not worth nothing. He still ends up with millions to run. This, All right, He's, this he project. does still end up with millions. So which what he, he does he spends on his project, but yeah, what he does with "We Live in Public" is he sets up his entire apartment with a bunch of cameras and microphones, and the cameras are movement sensitive, so they sort of retilt themselves an angle. I believe it's the same thing that Lars von Trier used to shoot that um, the Office comedy. I can't oh, remember the name of that movie now. Um, the the boss of it all boss of it all yeah I oh my god i can't believe you remember cameras. that good job Martin. yeah yeah <laughs> i was thinking it was called you're you're not the boss of me and i was like that's the malcolm in the middle theme song that can't possibly be what it's called but um but it's that same sort of thing where these cameras which are like night vision infrared type cameras follow him around his apartment him and his girlfriend and it's basically the story of him setting up this art project that he believes is a masterpiece he sort of he he clearly thinks of himself as a um what is her name now artist is present a uh, marina ambravovich he thinks of himself oh, as a marika marina yes. ambravovich sort of like concept artist uh physical space artist um that's creating this artwork 
with this, that his life is becoming an artwork. And the reason he thinks that is because he loved Gilligan's Island when he was a kid. And yeah. Gilligan's Island is more important to him and formed him more than anything else. Sherwood Swartz left a bigger imprint on them than anything else. And so this artwork that he's creating is doing the same thing. Meanwhile, the only time Gilligan or Sherwood Schwartz ever gets mentioned are in like these two second blips have nothing to do with the project whatsoever. It's so it's bad. Like it's so Gilligan bad, like pregnant. graduate <laughs> art school thesis. It's just so bad, dumb concept that has nothing to do with the actual artwork itself. It's a, I'm all about Gilligan. What's your project? Well, I'm filming myself in my apartment and I call it the Gilligan, Brett. And you're like, the, oh the way he talks about it, it's like Gilligan's the beating heart of it all. And yeah. I think he has a big Gilligan poster up in his he uh, has like three warhol-esque gilligan prints in, in his <laughs> living room wall like it's just it's it's yeah. so fucking stupid he's such a bad artist that's really what it is is like he's a regular but he's in that specific like julian schnabel damien hurst like rich guy oh, art asshole yeah. world jeffrey coons he's like a jeffrey coons type jeffrey he's coons. always wearing like a turtleneck or an ascot and chomping on a cigar and just like one of these guys who clearly thinks of himself as like, I'm a big player in the New York art world, you know? And you're just like, I, I could not stand you less. You could not be more boring. You could not be more boring if you tried. There's nothing less interesting than 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 you, Josh Harris, you know? Um, His whole project about living in public, how do you think that fits into today when pretty much everyone is living in public in the I way think that it's, he's kind I of think describing. It's prescient and I think he's clearly got like uh, an early version of what we talked about the pseudo social relationships of like that yeah. kind of only fans relationship where he says they have an argument then they each run to their computer to see what the viewers are thinking yes. and I think he's inflating his number he says like 10,000 people in a day would watch the feed and so that's 400 people at any given time and it's like I I find those numbers very hard to believe very very hard to believe uh especially I in don't know like especially when when, when people it. had internet connections that were not that great um yeah this is like 99 2000 I mean that, that's the kind of thing where like depending on how the views are counted, if somebody clicks and clicks back and hits refresh, it might count all as a bunch of different views. It might be just one viewer. So, you know, I, I don't know how those metrics might come to pass, but I think it's probably true that it was not as big as he presents. Yeah. And, and um, that, that there were undoubtedly probably like a dozen people each day they were interacting with. And, but that's the way any of those, it is, it's basically like a cam girl site is basically yeah. what it's like. And it ends up getting treated that way where they want to see them having sex and they start talking about you're not exciting enough in bed when that's a, a, a thing that he, an argument he lodges against her. It, it just quickly becomes what all of these sort of uh, living in public projects become which is like an attraction for for voyeuristic perverts and like that has its place in society you know that's definitely something i'm in favor of as a voyeuristic pervert myself you know sure. uh, but well i think in some like, ways the the people who approach it as as a voyeuristic pervert plays it, it's a little bit more honest actually i mean that's closer yeah. to to it than like, I don't want to say it's not art. Like I had a, I have a friend who, um, you know, she would do streaming pornography and she approached it very much like art. She went to art school. She yeah. 
she was a serious. I, I went to art school too. I, I know certainly many. Okay, you like know, that. but like she, she took it very seriously. I helped her out with like some of this stuff and she approached it like she was making a film, like she was doing an, an art project. Yeah. And uh, and we were sort of like, I, I interviewed her a couple of times just because I thought it was really interesting how she was approaching this. And she talked about like, uh, this desire to be seen is, is very powerful. You know, like, I think, I don't want to get too much into this other person, but like talking about like her, her parents being kind of narcissistic and feeling this desire to, to be seen. I could see like, like Josh Harris feels like somebody who has that same basic impulse and is kind of burying it in, in this pretext of I'm making art. Like, I think it would be yeah. more honest if he was making pornography. Yeah. Um, and my friend, like eventually she got to the point where like she was doing stuff like people were just interested in her streaming herself sleeping and things exactly. like that. Like people it are interested in social. It becomes yes, like yeah. a fake relationship in which the person watching believes they're part of that yeah. life. I think that this project is prescient in that way in that it's, it's, it gets all tied to fake intimacy, manufactured yes. intimacy or well, intimacy with a wall between it the, at the, the end of the day. It's performative. It's, it's theater. It's fake it's him putting on a show, you know, it's, it's basically like I had enough money to make myself the star of my own TV show. That's really yeah. what he wants. You know, yeah. um, it's funny. Have you seen the new uh, Nathan Fielder show? Uh, the I haven't watched it yet. Okay. I haven't I, watched it. I've been I won't say busy. anything too much, but it, it was sort of interesting to watch that in close proximity with this because, yeah. you know, he, I feel like Nathan Fielder's basically making a joke out of that kind of a mindset. Of, yes. And, and Nathan Fielder's very influenced by Errol Morris, too. It should be pointed yes. out that that he's mentioned Errol Morris as an influence. And the series finale of Nathan for You is very Errol Morris-y in nature. And and a few of the episodes are have a, an Errol Morris flavor to them. Um, and this one, I see that just knowing what I know about the rehearsal. That's what it's called, right? Yeah, I mean, this it's kind of like a, a, like a blown-up version of that episode of Nathan for You, Um where they do the play smokers the allowed yeah, yeah like that's kind of taking that, that idea and my, expanding uh, it one of my that's year and lists as the best films of the year on my that's year my favorite episode, episode of the show that's, yeah it's phenomenally complicated and interesting yeah so um, it's like him turning that into a whole series now but like you can kind of see the connection between i think what nathan fielder is is making a joke about or picking apart yeah and putting on display and what what Josh Harris's actual motivations are in doing this project. Yeah, well, it's also, when we're talking about humor, the difference between Nathan Fielder's thing being great and interesting is humor and Josh yes. Harris having no sense of humor about right. himself, having having literally no sense of humor. He's somebody who seems to have watched Gilligan's Island and not understood it was a comedy. It's very, it's very strange. I mean, when you're a kid, you know? sometimes you do, you do watch these things and you don't realize that they're supposed to be funny, funny or, you know weird. like he, he talks yeah. about this moment specifically about this joke where they pour water down Gilligan's shirt and it looks like he's pregnant and how disturbing yeah. that was to him yeah and almost like this like traumatic thing that he saw on television but and it is uh, a really weird image there's no weird. question tv sucked then what <laughs> it is but it's he's also got that very generation x yeah. thing that you see that's not popular anymore but there was this generation x thing about sitcoms brady bunch sherwood schwartz gilligan's island and reality bites when they're doing the game that's just brady bunch episodes 
they're saying the plots of right in reality bites which is like the movie that's trying to be the most generation x movie ever made there was just he belongs to that generation x like it's not even the we were sold a false bill of goods about life it's just that like there was i was raised in such a way that it seemed like there was no life but tv right and yeah. and i discovered that was a fraud at some point in my own ironic sense of my childhood like i was sold all this junk and detritus but it was the formation and foundation of my existence and what do you do with that and the phrase josh harris uses is programmed by somebody else's dreams when he's talking yeah. about being raised by tv and but i think specifically too yes i agree uh, yeah. and i know what you're talking about there's a specific generation x thing of i was raised by this junk that was overtly junk and that it was pop cultural junk the hanna Barbera stuff the stuff was real gilgan's island is junk it's total junk and this had such amazing impact on me in some way that's a very generation x obsession whereas now people don't differentiate between the junk and the not junk it would just be weird for somebody to be like i was raised by tiktok and that led to some traumatic thing people just don't think anymore everybody has been successfully reprogrammed by pop cultural dreams in that way it's like not even an issue it's like the the whole selling out issue where like that used to be something people were like oh am i going to sell out and have my song used in a commercial i don't want my commercial being reprogrammed by somebody else's dreams my song being reprogrammed by somebody's commercial nobody it would never young people if you talk to them about selling out they just don't even know what the idea is that there should be a border between you and pop culture that there should be a wall between you and this overtly junk consumerist pop cultural world that you should exist outside of it it just doesn't even occur to people anymore in the same way especially younger people that like there's a way to live life in which you don't know what any of these disney channel shows are like you just never know what they are you know like it would just it's people don't live that way anymore so sort of his his project of of that i've been uh you know programmed by sherwood schwartz and then people watch me and harvest me you know it just the project doesn't have the same feeling although i definitely feel like the idea of like where he compares himself to an apple orchard and the people that come in to watch are just taking pieces of him until he's a tree that's all used up i do think that is what social media is i think social media yeah. is a pretty black dark space where if you're successful you have people just picking you apart and picking off pieces of you all day long until there's nothing left or you're the kind of person who there was nothing there to begin with so it doesn't matter that it all got picked you're a ben dreyfus type somebody who's no shame i was talking with uh i shouldn't say his real name i was talking with my friend john frankensteiner about this where about like just how bad twitter can be and he was like you can't shame the shameless that's the thing is you can try and dunk on people but the only people you'll successfully dunk into shame are good human beings if you try and dunk <laughs> assholes into non-existence nothing happens to them it just makes them stronger you can't shame the shameless Nobody so because we we're stronger. talking about like you know just like the whole like dunking and negativity culture on there and how like we both hate it and just don't want any part of it yeah. you know and, and also uh, social media like we met through social media yes well we were you know, saying I, 
that site is not a hell site. I met a bunch of good friends on there. It's a really good space. This is not a parasocial relationship. This is a real like friendship, you know, it's there's, but there's like 40 people I'd say in the film world whose jobs, their entire life is just showing up to pylons and directing their followers at pylons. And that's what they do every day. And it's, they got their beat and somebody shows up to the, to the race pylon and somebody sums up to the fe- the feminism pylon and somebody shows up to the trans issue pylon somebody shows up to the conservative asshole pylon you know and they have the, the and the snyder fan pylon and they just <laughs> do this their whole life is just this drudgery of whatever's the trending topic i stuff it into my beat i show up i get in my shots i tell everybody who follows me to get in my shots and if like if those 40 people didn't exist there you twitter would be a lovely place but also that void would get filled right away because there's a that void is somehow a void there it's somehow how the mechanism works there'd be like two weeks where twitter was lovely but like if you just stick to your own shit and you follow and you just avoid the pylon artists it's all people i like on there my experience is uniformly nice i talk to my friends i've made real friends on there as you were saying yeah and in some ways it's you realize it's better in a way at, at building a sense of community because you find people with actual interests, you find people with opinions that you can connect to and engage with. And it's different than like, well, I guess I'm friends with this person because they live in the same town as me and they're kind yeah. of interested in film, I guess. Um, we don't really have that much in common, but they're they're geographically, they're they're easier to engage with than somebody was, who lives I in a I was talking country. to a friend of this the other day is like, how crazy is it that when I was young, I used to go into a bar and be like, maybe there's a woman in this bar that I will walk up and talk to and have enough in common with to date and fall in love with her. Just some random person, just because she's standing in this bar you know, that was my strategy for it, as opposed to like Tinder and, and Hinge and everything where it's like a much better way of doing this, much, much better. The idea used to just be like, maybe tonight I will well, go into a bar and there's someone I like enough to marry in that bar tonight. I mean, that, that's clearly like a bad way of approaching things. I think with Tinder, though, and like that kind of online dating stuff, again, it's trying to systematize something that's maybe not easily systematizable. I, you know, I like it much more. It means that I, I don't I, have to talk to any woman who doesn't want to be talked to in public. It's sure, that's the way sure. it should be. But I'm, I think like there is also, you know, it feels like that's that's more towards the other side. But there is something to kind of stumbling onto people who aren't necessarily looking for, you know, not even for just a relationship, sure. but some kind of yeah. a for sure. connection, friendship, whatever, you know. So yeah. I think like. It's it's hard to structure something like finding a romantic partner. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it seems like I just oh, mean I agree with your geographic idea, yeah, yeah. where it's sort of like, you know, have who it's man. There's people that are like I went to college with, and I had a very I went to a very uh, I don't know how to phrase it selective film school that would only accept twenty students a year, and it's like I spent years with these people that like all of them except for john i had like nothing in common with you know what yeah. i mean and it's just like you get to no, know I, I had a similar well. experience I, I have some friends for life i go out of university but like a lot of the 
people I, I was closest to were not necessarily in the same film program as me. Some yeah. of the people I, I couldn't even really, could not even really get along with or work with at all because, <laughs> you know, you're so at odds and like you're put into a environment that's actually pretty competitive, which I feel like is sort of a bad approach as far as making connections and building kind of working relationships. Like a lot of the people I, I stay in touch with and, and buddies with are people who were like in the screenwriting program, which was different yeah. or film studies or people I met in uh, elective classes. Like I took classical yeah. studies and East Asian art and stuff like this, where it was actually easier to find people who were just kind of interested in things and I can connect to and weren't like competing to rent the same camera and had like yeah. vastly different ideas of what cinema is and all of that nonsense, you know? What do you, do you think, do you think Josh Harris actually cares about any of the issues we're discussing about pseudo-social and parasocial relationships, about voyeurism and being programmed by somebody else's dreams? Or do you think he's just a narcissist? What do you actually I think, think? I think he just wants to be seen. I mean, it's interesting. He talks about like, well, I think, again, he's got his two kinds of people. <laughs> he said there's uh, people like Tanya, the woman he's putting on this performance of, of having a relationship with, I guess, uh, people who integrate or engage with the viewers and comment and reply. And, and there's Josh people who just want to be observed. You know, I feel yeah. like he is just the guy who wants to be seen. Yeah. But he also talks about how he feels like he has to stop it. And what's wrecking him is when like, he feels like he can't even masturbate you know, because people are going to see it. He's not a total voyeur in that way. In some ways, he feels like a no. bad person for this project because he does still have some boundaries. He wants to sneak off to the bathroom to have sex. He doesn't want to have sex on camera and stuff like that. Although he doesn't mind people seeing him on, on the toilet. And that is, uh, not voyeur, but uh, exhibit, exhibitionist. Exhibitionist, right. 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 I, exhibitionist. I that way. Sorry, why do um, I keep saying that wrong? But um, uh, I, I think like, he obviously does have his boundaries, but I think like being seen is not the same as wanting to be like seen all the time doing everything, but like you want people to know that you're there and you know, maybe it's narcissism, maybe it's something else, but like I, I think there is that kind of desire to be acknowledged and observed and have people notice you. And I feel like, I don't know what he's up to lately, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if he's like the kind of person who would count how many people followed him on twitter that week and how many people unfollowed yeah. him and all of that kind of stuff that is yeah, not really exactly. important you know that has some like things stuck in his crawl about like i have 36k files and followers and this artist i feel like i'm committing with only has 34 and feel See, like he said it's something about the ratio meaningful. yeah it's about it's not about the number of followers you're gonna have a good ratio of how yeah, many people you follow to follow, like all of that stuff it's interesting. I was I was telling you about this. You and I both feel like this is like a weirdly incomplete episode. There's something yes. about this episode that feels incomplete. Well, I feel like it should juxtapose his interview with an interview of uh, Tanya, the woman he's talking well, about. We had uh, we had talked about this where I had read a review of this um, years after it was over online in the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm pretty sure it was Sam Adams that wrote the review. And at the end of the review, it says, and next week, uh, there'll be an episode uh, from the point of view of his girlfriend, the perspective of his girlfriend. And the show got canceled after this episode aired. And I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. I would love to see this when I program the Errol Morris series. I, I, I 
was talking to Globe Department Store. I couldn't get up the nerve to ask for it, really. Uh, after a screening of American Dharma, I was talking with Morris, and I finally said to him, you know, I've, I heard that um, that this was there, that there's a second episode from her point of view. I would really, really love to see this episode and write about it. And he's like, what? Not at all. Where did you hear this? And I was like, oh, spent like 15 years imagining this great completion to this yes. episode to this and just completely made up but i wonder if the reviewer felt like it's so natural that must be what next week's episode it does feel like part one of a two-parter more so than the ones that were two-parters which really just feel like oh you had to split up this longer project this really feels like okay here's one side i kind of want to hear i want to hear about the person who integrated with the people watching and i want to hear her perspective on him because he spends so much of it talking about her and you never really get to hear her. Yeah, well, you don't at all get to hear you her voice. You get to see her face. Yeah. yeah. It makes me think of, um, it's not the same thing at all, but remembering Grizzly Man, how he talks about um, the guy who went off in the woods tried to project this image that I'm the lone hero going off to save the grizzlies and I'm by yeah. myself. And he had his girlfriend with him the whole time. Yeah. And she's not in like any of the footage. She's in like yeah. two shots by accident. <laughs> um, you know, I, that's not at all what, what's going on here, but it just sort of made me think of that um, where you barely get to see her watching this this documentary. I, I'm sure you saw her all the time if you watched We Live in Public. Yeah. But. but it's also, it's fascinating. It does feel like she's being held back to have another episode in which we get to see her. She does feel like yeah. she's being held back by the filmmaking. Although now I can see it's just Errol Morris like singularly focused documentaries, uh, especially these with the exception of the parrot are all one person talking directly to the camera, first person perspective, that's the idea. And I think that that's really uh, all that's happening with it. Um, and they don't, you know, it's also like, it's a funny thing where it's sort of, he's talking about their fights and how she like gave him a grocery bill when she was finally getting kicked out for all the groceries we bought. And it's like, I don't want to know about this couple's fights. Who wants to be involved in other people's fights? Like my own fights are boring enough. I, I don't want to have anything to do with watching your domestic minutia at all. You know, even if I liked you, even if you were somebody I was, I was obsessed with in some way, I don't think I want to know your crap in this way. You know, that's why I feel like it ultimately becomes voyeuristic, perverted stuff yeah. is the only people who really want to be involved in this are people that are developing a sexual relationship to it in some way. I feel like that's yes. really why people watch it in some way. And and knowing yeah. that exactly what you say is true, that a lot of, you know, cam girls and things like that, it'll just be, okay, I'm painting my toenails, that's it. Or I'm fucking yeah. around on my cell phone for the next four hours you know, kind of thing with no show attached to it whatsoever in that way. Um, it's, um, I, there's something I always say a little bit as a joke, but also a little bit serious that I'm somebody who likes to keep my personal lives very separate yeah. from each other. <laughs> you know, I feel like that sometimes weird. Um, I mean, I was talking to somebody, they were really surprised when I said I have uh, a podcast because I'm so quiet. Yeah. They, they were like shocked. Um, and now it's like, I don't really have my own podcast anymore. I just, I'm a, podcast hobo but you yeah. know they were surprised that I was somebody who would speak at length about anything because I'm, I'm usually kind of a quiet person um, or you know there, there's like parts of my personal life that um, I'm not ashamed of or anything like this but I just 
I won't share it on Twitter. And I feel like yeah. I'm more open about most things on Twitter than, than a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I, I, my face is really out there. I use my real name. That's, that's a lot more than a lot of people do, but then like, I'll, I'll see people put themselves out there in a way where it's like, I would never. Yeah. Like, what are you doing, man? I would never talk about that, you know, or yeah. I would never share that side of myself, you know? So it's, it's, um, you know, again, we're back to a border between Paraguay and Argentina because there's, there's not really an obvious thing that separates what I would talk about or what I would show to the public and what somebody else does. But there are definitely things where I'm like, I, I would not share that. I would not put well, that I'm, out there. With this episode, I'm very fascinated with that it doesn't come up. Andre Breton talking about the utopian ideal of living in a glass house where everybody watches um eat and make love and shit, right? And this is like one of Breton's like surrealist ideals. And Milan Kundera talking about like, this is the nightmare. And you yes. know, it's the nightmare in a police state, in a totalitarian state. This is how it is. You do have cameras with people watching you all the time. You do have people going through your trash and interested in how your shits are going, you know, and that Breton's idea of the utopia where everybody is open and honest about everything they're doing is, is like this fundamentally inhuman thing. I tend to agree with Kundera. I'm somebody who hates being looked at, hates being watched. I will stop going to restaurants if the waiters start recognizing me and being like, you want the usual? Like, I will not go there anymore after that. You know, I really... I like to live anonymously. I do not like to live in public. I do... I am very private person i don't like to be around people i'm not a super social person and so the breton idea of like that's the last thing i want i don't want more people watching me when i'm doing anything you know yep so I, I made a movie where one of the things that i had the characters talk about is that uh, watching each other's shit should be like the final taboo in a relationship like you can be completely comfortable with another person and you know sexually comfortable emotionally comfortable all this stuff but you should not watch each other shit yeah. because it'll it's like the last bit of mystique the final taboo it and feels once you like it's that, over when that happens <laughs> then it it's over that was like it's over yeah so that's that's what i had um my character stuff i made this film just like it was me and my friends and my yeah. girlfriend at the time and uh we, I basically just made it for ourselves, but th this was like a whole topic that I had come up yeah. in that, that like you should not, you know, as close as you are with your partner, you need to have like some level of well, it's, it's mystery, some level of privacy. So don't don't watch each other's shit. But that's what's when when I think this is another self-deceiving character. What's amazing is Harris doesn't seem to have any sense of what this means about intimacy and privacy and relationships. It's a very weird like. I thought it would be awesome to be Gilligan. It turns it sucks to be Gilligan, you know, to be trapped on this desert island being laughed at all day. It's actually no fun. He doesn't seem to have a really refined sense of what it means for his intimacy apart from this isn't good because after we fight, we're both running to our computers to see what the viewers are saying about who's right. I think part way. of it is because it's so performative. Like, yeah. I feel like, I mean, what's strange about this documentary is that, uh, or what's strange about this art project, We Live in Public, is that today people do that without any kind of self-consciousness at all. And like, yeah. it's still performative when, you know, people talk about putting uh, pictures on Instagram that make their lives look better than they really are and this yeah. sort of thing. Like, it is still performative, but I feel like 
there's some kind of a disconnect there where he's self-conscious about the fact that he's performing yeah well he's like very intentionally presenting himself like a mogul of some kind the way he dresses and acts he's like right. dime store knockoff peter bogdanovich and his and his, like his dress <laughs> and manner <laughs> yeah he's like he's weirdly but like when he's talking about i already had my nouveau riche face i'm not gonna blow all my money next time but he looks like a dude who'd be hanging out in hooters he'd look looked like the guy telling people he's canada's number three robot inventor you know what i'm saying he looks like that kind of <laughs> kind of dude like he's he's somehow he is very nouveau riche in the sense that like he he's he's doing like a bad impression of like a player and a mogul and somebody important you know he's he's doing like a really clueless impression of it in the way that i guess he's saying i do a clueless impression of my own life that i'm programmed by somebody else's dreams that that there's no him there, but I do think he has a really strong personality. It's just not a very, um, he's the opposite of Antonio Mendez. I, 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 he, I can get a good sense of what he's actually like. There is a there there, um, but he's just not that interesting. He's not cool. He's not funny. He's not smart. He's not interesting. Uh, he's not insightful. He's, he's a very specific kind of like tech bro art school dipshit type He's very irritating New Yorker. He's just very irritating, cliche New Yorker type. Um, so, you know, throw a brick, you'll hit one in Soho. Do me a favor, Martin, throw it hard. Oh, um, I don't know if I'll throw that brick, but <laughs> um, well, I, I just feel like we, we covered these all pretty well. Yeah, I feel like that we've covered this series more in depth than anyone has ever spoken about these films probably more than anybody's ever written about them. Uh, is there is some some grand summing up that we need to do for it? I mean, this is one of the all-time great TV series, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, there's certain TV shows I would not be interested in talking about, but there's a certain kind of like auteur television that I think fits in with talking about uh, movies and all of that. And this is definitely an, a great example of that. Um, it's different than if we had talked about something like Wormwood, which I think would have to be talked about almost as one episode. Yeah. I mean, the whole reason why we why we broke this up and talked about them as different episodes, I think it's really because it's hard to pin a grand unifying thing on the whole series because it is yeah. interesting in different subjects, different topics, and they kind of overlap and bump into each other and bounce off each other in interesting ways, but it doesn't feel like there's a there's a overall point or you the know the grand unifying thing is Morris himself yes that these are Morris's interests that's the grand unifying theme is is our tourist purely in the sense of there there's a an intelligence and an author working behind this I think which makes it hard to figure out how to how to talk about it except the way we did talk about it you know yeah. is there anything we gave short shrift to do you feel Oof. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, there's probably things where when I'm going to listen back, I've already thought like, oh, I kind of wish I could have gone back and interjected this or that, but it feels pretty pointless. Like that would just be kind of nitpicking. <laughs> you know? Like I feel like we did really cover it well and I'm, I'm satisfied with how we talked about these. Uh, how, how do you feel about this? We talked about doing this episode, these episodes for such a long time that um, 
I don't know. What, how, how do you feel about this? I Coming feel very it? happy about this. Morris is a filmmaker I really like a lot. I've written a lot about for him for the site. I feel like him and Patricia Highsmith are the two things I've written about the most on the site. Um, and so I, it feels good to do it and to dive in. And like I said at the beginning of it, to talk about short films and shorter works as well and give them actual space and uh, and not just only talk about feature films yeah. is something I've wanted to do. And it's good. And I love talking to you, Martin. I do feel like these episodes are very Chris Funderburg heavy, but only because you kept saying things that would make me think of like 500 comments. It really... I hope you don't feel like I talked over you the whole time, but really everything you would say would just like an explosion of thoughts. That's fine. I feel like I, maybe I should have said less even to <laughs> get myself into less trouble. Uh, but I'm, I would be happy to be like the, the Errol Morris behind the camera, just like barking something out every once in a while. I, I'm, I'm happy with that position. <laughs> What's your favorite interjection from the series for him? Zany. <laughs> Why zany? Why zany? And his whys are always great. Why? Why what? Why serial killers? Oh, that's lame. That's lame. <laughs> his interjections are wonderful. Again, something that you don't always see a lot of documentaries do. The documentarian is either absent, they cut themselves out of the thing completely. Yeah. Or it's like a Michael Moore thing where they are, in a sense, the, the documentary subject. You know, they make yeah. themselves the subject. And like Morris is not that you know but he's he's engaging with the subjects and doesn't let you forget that he's the one doing the interviewing yeah he breaks that rule just enough of be be invisible because he loves breaking documentary rules he breaks it just enough to uh to say i'm i'm breaking that rule and remind you that he's there but not making him the show where you're like get this guy out of my movie you know which is definitely a lot of modern documentaries you have that like what what is this guy all over this movie i'm trying to watch about <laughs> or i've you had know, situations where kurt vonnegut like the, the, you know the documentarian assumes they're not going to make it into the documentary and they're not even mic'd and then they'll shoot something where they're doing an interview and they say something and it, like it has to you know they say some question and you can't cut around it it has to go in the documentary yeah and you got to put subtitles or come up with some stupid solution because it's like no you have to go in there <laughs> but uh, that's happened a couple times i'm not somebody who ever wanted to make documentaries this was but like i've probably made more than um any any fiction stuff by now and partly it's just you don't really need much of a crew if you're going to make a documentary at least you know yeah. uh, unless you're going to do certain specific things um and i i feel like i i sort of fell into that because i had a camera and, you yeah. know but it, it's interesting to see somebody like morris work because honestly I, I don't even like most documentaries like i like you know i mentioned a couple of them but like you know if i'm going to like watch him and wiseman are like the know, only ones i want to watch you know? Well, like you know what I like to watch is uh, just like nature documentaries without oh, of course, commentary and stuff like this. I, I just enjoy watching like uh, you know Planet Earth or even like the the Disney Bears documentary. Well, I don't, I'll yeah. get past the John C. Riley voiceover and just enjoy watching the bears. Yeah, nature documentaries are yeah. sort of what it's invented for. I feel like that's what cameras are invented for. Um, yeah, thank you for doing this form with thank you me. Very much. Uh, yeah. And and these will go up one a week for a month rather than spacing them out so it's not two months of of errol morris's first person 
And uh, I hope people uh, listen to him, enjoy him. This is obviously something I feel super passionately about. And I've loved talking with you about them. I, I loved hearing your thoughts and and the thoughts they spurred in me. I don't know if I convey that enough that like I had all these thoughts because I'm having a good conversation with you and, yeah. and you're spurring me to a lot of interesting things that I wouldn't have thought about otherwise and connections I might not have made if you hadn't sort of made those synapses touch what episode were you surprised we talked about more than you would have thought we would have and what one did we talk about less i mean i was surprised where the little gray man uh conversation went talking about like the cia and the sort of <laughs> morality in a vacuum kind of situation like it, you know immediately after we had the conversation is like when all the like real ideas started coming to my head and i started thinking about like things alexa garman said about like valor in a vacuum and like yeah. you know people who are heroic without a real moral framework of what that really means if you're just like throwing heroism into the void or, you know <laughs> all these sort of things that like immediately came rushing in after but i thought that was a really interesting turn that conversation took um what else did <laughs> i was surprised how much mr personality like provided the spine for this episode yes I, i'm glad we put that one in the first conversation. Because I don't had. think of that as one of the great episodes in the series, but it ended up being like the touchstone for everything, yes. I guess, because it's about analyzing mind yeah. that it ends up being like, oh, we got to go back to that. You know, it's, it's useful in understanding the thinking process of trying to put a methodology on things. I'm trying to understand people, classify yeah. people, because that that is also a reoccurring theme in these documentaries is... yeah trying to classify people, trying to put things into boxes. And that was really interesting. Um, and then I'll say, like, I was a little surprised leaving the earth because it feels so monumental. I, we discussed it enough, but I thought yeah. like, it just doesn't fit in with the others in the same way. So it didn't come up except when we were talking about it. You know what I mean? Like it's sort of its own yeah. thing. So there are a couple like that, like um, the parrot is sort of another one that, that, it does fit in, but it feels a little bit apart from the rest. Yeah, uh, a couple of them actually. Like it, it's funny when we're talking about any kind of grand unifying theme or description, because like a bunch of these are, ah, these don't really fit in with the rest. But that's a lot of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and that's kind of what makes it an interesting series. And yeah, you know, you get a sense of the breadth of Morris's interests and interest in topics. But again, there's sort of a singular perspective behind the camera which ties it all together and even as it's stylistically very consistent it never becomes boilerplate the way like a dateline episode is going to be like a dateline episode always there this it has a singular artistic voice but it's never boilerplate um thank you very much again for talking about this we've got I'm so glad the, this the... worked out uh I, listeners don't even know how we were talking about this for such a long time i'm, I'm really <laughs> happy that this finally came together uh, me too. Thank you for doing it. We got a lot of Martin Kessler right now. We just had the Total Recall episode up. We got the uh, unfinished uh, artworks episode coming up too around the same time as this. There's going to be a lot of Martin Kessler on the Maybe old I need to pink hide snow. out for a while. <laughs> just lay low. <laughs> well, it's funny because you did the Doomed City episode and I was like, I don't want to put the Total Recall episode right beside it. I'm going to hold off on putting that up. And then I waited and now it's just we got more stuff and it's it's wherever I move it. There's Martin Kessler everywhere you turn these days. Gotcha. Thank Have you. a good night, everybody. Thank you again, Martin. Thank you.
Puh. 